Welcome to this podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. It publishes original research and topical reviews on basic and clinical aspects of gastrointestinal sensation and motility, as well as brain-gut interactions. It is the official journal of the American Neurogastroenterology and Motility Society and the European Society of Neurogastroenterology and Motility. Welcome everyone to this month's podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. My name is Dr Adam Farmer and I'm a consultant neurogastroenterologist at the Wingate Institute of Neurogastroenterology at Barts and the London School of Medicine, London, UK. And it is my great pleasure this month to welcome Professor Beverly Greenwood van Meerveld and Dawn Prusatour. Beverly is a Professor of Physiology and has been Director of the Oklahoma Centre for Neuroscience and the Presbyterian Health Foundation Chair in Neurosciences at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center since 2004. She is also affiliated with the VA Medical Center and has been a VA career scientist since 2007. Dawn Prusator is a PhD student working in Beverly's lab. They have recently published a paper entitled Gender-Specific Effects of Neonatal Limited Nesting on Viscerosomatic Sensitivity and anxiety-like behaviour in adult rats in neurogastroenterology and motility. Welcome to you both, and many congratulations on your publication. So, Beverly, could you give me some background to the study that you've performed? Of course. Well, Dr. Farmer, evidence exists that early life stress, such as neglect or abuse, does have profound effects on the developing brain, and adverse experiences are more common in impoverished areas. We also know in the GI field that a history of early life stress, such as neglect or abuse, has been indicated as a risk factor for the development of functional bowel disorders, such as irritable bowel syndrome in adulthood. So what animal models are out there already? Well, there are... um, Uh, Two animal models prior to us working on the limited nesting, the most well-characterized is a model of maternal separation. Um, This model has been expanded over a number of years with different rodent strains, different um, protocols. But the original research showed that in the model of maternal separation, um, visceral pain or increased visceral hypersensitivity is seen in male animals, which is similar to the findings um, on, in this limited nesting model. But there's also another model that we've been using in our lab of odor attachment learning, which use, utilizes classical conditioning instead of alterations in maternal care. And interestingly, in this model, we've shown that um, there is a female-specific visceral hypersensitivity in adulthood. So taken together, these various animal models mimic something slightly different in terms of the early life stress, but we think they're all very useful to look at the basic mechanisms by which various forms of early life stress may be leading to abnormalities um, in adult health. So what is known already about limited nesting and how does this really lead on to your study and what was your hypothesis? Well, the limited nesting model has been shown in the literature to induce changes in maternal behaviour, the stress axis dysfunction neonates and there's changes in anxiety-like behaviour. 
Um, however, the long-term consequences of limited nesting um, in adult health remain to be explored. So the goal of our study was to parallel childhood abuse seen amongst lower socioeconomic um, uh, environment by utilizing this model of limited nesting. And we hypothesized that early life stress in the form of neonatal limited nesting may serve as a predisposing factor for the development of altered nociceptive processing, as well as increases in comorbid anxiety-like behavior in adulthood. And to our knowledge, we're the first group to actually investigate the long-term effects of limited nesting on visual and somatic pain and to actually show that there are um, sex-related differences. So Dawn, could you tell me a little bit about the experimental methods that you used in your study? Um, so we obviously used the limited nesting model um, and followed the protocol developed by Tally Barham. Uh, we used Sprague Dolly rats um, and then post, from postnatal days two through nine, we placed them on a wire mesh cave bottom, removed their regular bedding material and replaced it with a single paper towel. Um, and so this has been shown to change the maternal behavior because he's not able to build an adequate nest. Um, on postnatal and they go back to a regular bed experiment. Um, they're weaned as usual. Um, and then we did all of our experiments in adulthood, uh, approximately postnatal day 90. Um, <clears throat> so we measured um, visceral and somatic pain. We measured anxiety-like behavior with two different assays. Um, and we quantified the estrus cycle. Um, we used a visceral motor response to colorectal distension and freely move anals. Um, so the number of abdominal contractions quantifies their nociceptive response. Um, we used a von probe for the somatic sensation. Um, and then we used a complementary elevated plus maze and open field test um, for anxiety-like behavior to ensure that we we're seeing that phenotype across multiple assays because anxiety can be difficult to measure. Um, and as I said, we uh, quantified the estrus cycle because females exhibit differences in um, nociceptive responses based on whether estrogen and progesterone are high or low. Um, so we did vaginal cytology and then separated all of our data into follicular versus luteal phases. So Dawn, could you tell me what your key findings were? So I think that the key findings um, really lie in the sex differences. So we found that um, early life stress in the form of neonatal limited nesting induces visceral and somatic hypersensitivity that's comorbid with anxiety-like behavior. <clears throat> and this is a male-specific response, while adult cycling female rats are seemingly unaffected. What do you think are the underlying mechanisms that explain your key findings? Um, so I think that in terms of mechanisms, um, I think there are developmental mechanisms um, potentially for pain perception that um, involve estrogen and testosterone. Um, it's been shown in a separate model of early life stress um, that increases in visceral pain for um, estrogen dependence. I think that these mechanisms may be related to testosterone and estrogen um, and how those might modulate both pain pathways, um, stress responses within the brain. So do you think it's a difference in the sex hormones that largely explains these differences in responses? Potentially. Um, there are organizational and activational effects. So we don't know at this point um, whether 
the differences in pain perception and anxiety-like behavior are because um, males and females are um, reacting differently and different changes are occurring, or whether the same changes are occurring but they're activated by the presence of, in this case, testosterone um, that causes increased responses and alterations in their anxiety-like behavior. So, Dawn, what do you think are the key strengths and, indeed, limitations of your study? Um, so I think that one of the key strengths of the study is that we can induce um, this form of early cholesterol without ever removing the cost from the dam. So we can eliminate a lot of variables um, and variables that are present in almost all other models. Removal of cost from the dam um, which could propose a nutritional component. Um, there's handling, uh, things like that. So I think that's a key strength of our study. Um, I think a, a limitation is that although there are males that exhibit um, irritable bowel syndrome uh, phenotypes and develop irritable bowel syndrome, um, it's predominantly a female disease. Um, so we're not mirroring the predominance in females, but we are targeting that male population. Um, and I think that we can certainly use our uh, study in conjunction with other investigations of early life stress models to really get a deeper understanding of the development of pain and anxiety and how it interacts with these early life um, adverse experiences. So what do you think are the next steps in taking the field forward? And moreover, what are the next studies that you would like to perform? Um, I think that what's really important, um, as the National Institute of Health has pointed out, uh, is really digging into sex differences, um, the fact that males and females are different. We can't see them the same. Um, so I think that moving forward, um, looking at the effect of testosterone, um, either removing the testosterone um, or um, using some kind of pharmacological intervention um, to see what the effects of these hormones are. Um, and then moving from there, we can focus on mechanisms um, within the brain, uh, how does testosterone interact with pain pathways specifically, um, and vice versa. Is there a resilience factor because estrogen is interacting with these um, pain processing systems. Um, so I think that that's definitely how we should move forward um, and definitely keeping in mind that there are several different models of early life stress that we can use and kind of compare and look at what the differences really are and, and tease apart what the minutia is between these models, what the real differences might be. Beverly, what do you think are the human correlates of your important findings? Well, we know as that there are patients with functional disorders are two to four times more likely to report uh, early life stress, and 80% of patients with a history of childhood abuse are diagnosed with at least one psychological disorder in adulthood. So I think our findings taken together provide a platform for further investigation of the mechanisms underlying sex-related differences in as Don uh, pointed out, in vulnerability or resistance following early life stress. And that leads to uh, our belief that this has the potential to identify new treatment approaches for patients with IBS and other functional pain disorders. I would particularly like to thank you both for sharing your excellent paper with us and assisting us in this month's podcast. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in and I look forward to welcoming you to another instalment of the podcast next month. Further information about this paper can be found on the journal website.
We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and we look forward to welcoming you to next month's edition, where Professor Peter Carillus will be discussing the third iteration of the Chicago classification of esophageal motor disorders.